Imagine going to school, finding out one of your classmates has been brutally raped and murdered. Obviously, this is very upsetting. Only your sorrows for this individual is taking a suspicious behavior. Before you know it, you're being questioned by cops. You're being pressured to take a lie detector test, given multiple cups of coffee, and before you know it, you're on trial for murder, which you are found guilty of. 17 years to life. Off to prison you go. Being totally innocent, this had to blow Jeffrey's mind. But that's exactly what happened. Until thankfully, 17 years later, he was found not guilty and exonerated due to the help of the Innocence Project and DNA evidence. Today's story on crime and entertainment is Jeffrey Deskovic. The following podcast is a Carolina Boys production. Welcome back, everyone, to Crime Entertainment. I'm your host, Hollywood Wade. Now, we're bringing two episodes back-to-back this week. Our audio issues uh, were among us last week, so we're dropping the previous week, this week's, and then next week we're going to give you Michael Thompson, as we told you on the Frank DiMatteo episode, so be sure to tune in for Michael Thompson. But this week, as I just put out in the interview there, Jeffrey Deskovic out of New York has got an amazing story that all you guys need to hear. Just a kid going to school like any other day, and one of his classmates was brutally raped and murdered. And Jeffrey, you know, was was upset. This was kind of the first brush with death that he had to deal with, and that was taken as suspicious behavior. And before you know it, he's wound up in a police station, being fed multiple cups of coffee, being put on a lie detector test, being told if he just, you know, admits to this, he can go home all of which were lies, and it ultimately landed him in prison for 17 years before he was thankfully exonerated. And the story after he gets out of what this man does and goes on to accomplish is absolutely nothing short of amazing. So check this episode out right now, ladies and gentlemen, with Jeffrey Deskovic on Crime and Entertainment. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to Crime and Entertainment. Now, I have here a very special guest. And his story is, it's hard to put it into words because in some parts of it, it's, it's very sad. It's very misfortunate. Uh, but in some cases, you know, it's, it's very inspirational. Um, so it's got highs, lows, and, and everywhere in between. Please welcome to the show, Jeffrey Deskovic. Jeffrey, how are you, my friend? I'm great, Wade. Uh, thank you for having me on the show. Yes, sir. I'm glad you can make it because you have one of those stories that I feel really needs to be told to the general public. Because largely, it, it these kind of cases and, and types of situations fly under the radar a lot. Because a the judicial system and the legal system don't like to admit when they made mistakes, so they do their best to keep it quiet and keep it hush hush. And you you probably know as well as I do, a lot gets reported when the rest are made, but not very many reports get made when you get out. So it's again, it's hard for people to find out the truth. And you have a crazy tale of how you were wrongfully convicted of a rape and murder of a former classmate. So before we get into that, um, there's just a little bit. Tell us just a little bit about you and kind of the area you grew up and, and how was the early life for Jeffrey? 
so my uh so uh Wade, my uh my early life uh so I grew up in Peekskill. It was in Westchester County, New York. It was the suburbs. Um it's called a city. It really is more of a town, but uh you know, population of approximately twenty five thousand people. And I didn't quite think of it this way at the time, but in a lot of ways, I, I really kind of lived a double life. There was my life after school and there was my life in school. So after school, there were a lot of kids that lived in the apartment complex where I lived at, and I was one of the main two kids. So for the most part, whatever I suggested would generally be what we would do. If we we're going to play Monopoly, if we we're going to go play basketball, if we're going to the movies, we're going to play kickball. Um, dodgeball and ride bikes and everything in between. Uh, but that was my life after school. But my life in school was different. So there the kids were a little bit older than me. They weren't familiar with me. Uh, I really didn't fit in. I didn't participate in a lot of organized sports. So that made me kind of seem strange to them. So I was kind of like on the fringes of the society in the high school. Wow. Okay. Now, well, the high school, that's the point where you were – you did get involved with a, a murder that had happened, and this was a classmate of yours, correct? Yeah, I mean, uh, as as the story will unfold, I got I got charged with it, but I don't I don't want any other definition of the word involved. Yeah, 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 uh, yeah. I'm sorry. Yeah, wrong choice of words there. <laughs> <laughs> Definitely wrong right. choice of words. Involved in a questioning, I guess would how it be would it start? All right. Now, did yeah, you yeah, have? So- uh, I was going to say, did you have a relationship with the victim? I mean, did you know her personally? Or, uh, well, I guess it depends on what you, how you want to define the word "no." Right. I mean, she was she. I mean, the year is nineteen eighty nine, um, November nineteen eighty nine, and and uh, you know, I, I the victim's name was Angela Correa. I I knew her name. She knew mine. I was in two of her classes as a freshman, one as a sophomore. Um, that was it. We weren't even really on a high buy basis, you know. And uh, so she was a, one of her classes was a photography class, and the photography uh, teacher assigned all the students in the class to take pictures of foliage. And he had implemented a buddy system uh, where male students were hooked up with female students. And for some and, and for some reason that day, when she went home from school, she walked home with her older sister. When I went in the house, older sister went to the restroom. When she came back out, uh, uh, Angela had uh, disappeared. She decided to go to the park herself to to take pictures. Uh, the male student played hooky on the assignment and and never never showed up. And so she went into this. Uh, she was she went to this park called Hillcrest Park, which was in between. It was like a, a wooded area with the macadam with the trees and the macadam path, which connected a, a school to a different apartment uh, complex. And she unfortunately came across this 29-year-old drug addict who was high, who attacked her, murdered, and raped her. And so being being murdered, she obviously went missing. Mm-hmm. So, you know, that was a, the first thing was that, you know, her body, you know, her body was, her, she was missing. And then a couple of days later, the newspaper ran a, follow-up report, you know, said teen body found, and they had her picture, and they had a map in the newspaper. And there hadn't been a murder in Peekskill for maybe uh, about 20 years, so this created an atmosphere of fear, rumor, paranoia. Parents were concerned with their own safety, the safety of their children. Um, you know, there were the kids. parents were driving their kids to school, picking them up, 
there were periodic town hall meetings given where updates on investigation were given and safety tips were disseminated. So, so that was the atmosphere. Okay. So how long after the murder of your classmate was, did it come to a point to where police started to question you and why did they question you? I would say somewhere between four to six weeks after. Uh, in terms of why they came to question me, uh, the police interviewed a lot of students from the high school, and some of them told the police that they might want to speak to me because I didn't quite fit in. I guess the underlying theory was that people that don't fit in and are quiet commit heinous crimes. Yeah. So that puts me on the right, which is kind of crazy, but that was the thinking, I believe. So that's how I got on the police radar. Beyond that, uh, the the um, I was an emotional teenager. I was oh, excuse me, I was a sentimental teenager, and this was my first real brush with death, and I had a emotional reaction to it. And so the police thought that my emotional reaction was disproportionate to what my actual relationship with the victim was. So they interpreted that as some sort of outward sign that I was sorry for what I had done. Mm-hmm. But then again, I wasn't all that different from anyone else. I mean, this really shook up the whole city uh, to the point that mental health, free mental health counseling was offered to anyone who wanted it. So a reinforcing factor was that the Peekskill police got a psychological profile from the NYPD, which purported to have the psychological characteristics of the actual perpetrator. And I had the misfortune of matching that. So a reinforcing factor. And so for the next six weeks, the police played this cat and mouse game with me in which half the time they would speak to me as if I was a suspect when they would push too hard and I would become frightened and I'd want to get away from them, then they would switch it up. And Jeff is this junior detective helper theme uh, was um, carried out, played up by them verbally. They would say things like the kids won't talk freely around us, but they will around you. Let us know if you hear anything. Uh, Stop in from time to time. They would ask me opinion questions and congratulate me like my opinion was correct. Prior to being a teenager, I fantasized about being a cop when I grew up. So this unexpected early opportunity to do this quasi-police work, along with my age, uh, 16, was how they were able to pull the wool over my eyes. That's the absurdity that a 16-year-old would be able to assist in an active homicide investigation. I came from a single-parent household. My father was never involved in my life in any aspect. And so that intersected with the good cop bad cop scenario in which one officer pretended to be my friend. And I began to look at him as a, uh, as a father figure. Right. So eventually they asked me to take a polygraph test. They said, we have some new information. We want to share that with you. That's going to allow us, that's going to, that's going to allow you to be more helpful to us. But first, you have to take and pass this lie detector test. So the next day, rather than report to the high school, I instead went to the police station for the test. Uh, My mother and grandmother thought that I was in school, so they had no idea that anything was wrong, and therefore they did not call around looking for me. But they drove me instead from the city of Peekskill, which is in Westchester County. They drove me to Putnam County, uh, specifically to Brewster. Um, there was 40 minutes away by car, which meant I wasn't able to leave on my own anymore. I was totally dependent upon the police. I did not have an attorney present. They didn't give me anything to eat the entire time I was there. 
they gave me a four-page brochure which explained how the polygraph worked, but it had a lot of big words in it that I didn't understand. But then I figured, well, I'm here to help the police. So what does it matter? Let's just get on with it. And from there, uh, he gave me uh, countless cups of coffee. By the way, this polygrapher, Daniel Stevens, he was dressed like a civilian. Uh, he never identified himself as law enforcement. He never read me my rights. And like I said, he gave me countless cups of coffee to get me nervous. And then he attached the machine to me. And then he launched into his third degree tactic. So he raised his voice at me. He invaded my personal space. He kept asking me the same questions over and over again. And he kept that up for six and a half to seven hours. Jesus. As each hour passed, my fear increased proportion to the time. At the end, he said, what do you mean you didn't do it? You just told me through the polygraph test result that you did. We just want you to verbally confirm it. And when he said that to me, that really shot my fear through the roof. And at that point, the cop that had been pretending to be my friend, he came in the room and told me that the other officers were going were gonna to harm me, that he had been holding them off but could not do so any longer, that I had to help myself. Then he said, look, just tell them what they want to hear. You can go home afterwards. You're not going to be arrested being young, naive, frightened, 16 years old, I was not thinking about the long term. I was just concerned with my own safety in the moment. I was in fear of my life. The fact that I didn't know where I was and no one else knew where I was either loomed quite large in my mind. I was overwhelmed emotionally and psychologically. And then there was this push-pull dynamic because on one hand, this threat had been thrown in the air, this possibility of harm. And on the other, he had thrown me this false life preserver so I decided to make up a story based on the information which they had given me in the course of the interrogation, uh, both that day and in a six weeks run up to it. By the time everything was said and done, I had collapsed on the floor in a fetal position, crying uncontrollably. Obviously, I was arrested. I was charged with a murder and rape. Jeez. So at 16 years old, they took you all that way away from your, I guess, I would say home base there and fed you all that coffee. And I mean, obviously that's going to make your nerves go through the roof because by and large polygraphs, which by the way, aren't even admittable in court. Um, I've always been under the impression and been told that if, if you are charged with something, be it innocent or guilty polygraphs are never a good thing to take. Now, granted, I got this, information in my thirties, you were 16 years old. So you may not have been privy to it, but is that correct? Because they're not even admissible in court. No, it, it is. You are correct. The only way they would be admissible in court would be if both sides uh, agreed to it, but you know, it's not reliable. It often has false positives and suffice it to say that, you know, military and even intelligence officers are e even receive training on how to beat the polygraph in the event that they are captured. Mm -hmm. And I mean, and a lot of it goes off your emotions and, and nervous system. Well, and if you drink right. six, seven cups of coffee, I can, man, you're going to be all over the map there. The premise of the polygraph is that if you lie, you'll become nervous. The nervousness will result in a increased pulse rate. And it's actually the pulse rate, which is measured by the machine. Right. But fear and caffeine will also cause that to happen. Right. So before I went to trial, the results of a DNA test came in from the FBI lab, which showed that semen found uh, on the victim didn't match me. 
But rather than acknowledge they made a mistake, they continued instead to prosecute full speed ahead. So in order to counter the DNA evidence, the prosecutor got the medical examiner to commit fraud to commit perjury. Once the DNA didn't match me, he tried try to follow this now. It's not, not going to be easy. He, he said for the first time, he says, I remember that I forgot to document medical evidence, which he claimed showed that the victim had been promiscuous, which is what opened the door for the prosecutor to argue, aha, that's how the DNA didn't match you, and yet you were still guilty. And then taking it a step further, he mentioned another youth by name that he falsely claimed had slept with the victim, but he never set the proper evidentiary foundation for that. So he never got a DNA sample from that individual to have it tested. He never called him as a witness. He just made the unsupported argument to the jury. And he got away with that for two reasons. One of them is that the victim's family was not coming to court. So they had no idea what was being said about her in court, that her reputation was being trashed and the furtherance of trying to wrongfully convict me. And secondly, my defense lawyer allowed him to get away with it. Uh, he never interviewed or called as a witness my alibi. I was actually playing wiffle ball when the crime happened. He rarely met with me. Whenever I tried to explain to him that I was innocent and what happened in the interrogation room, he was always shutting me up. One time he told me he didn't care if I was guilty or innocent. He never argued to the jury. This, he never explained to the jury the significance of the DNA not matching me. He never used that to argue that that proved the confession was coerced and false. He literally did not cross-examine the medical examiner. And he should have never represented me in the first place because of a conflict of interest. This other youth that the prosecutor was falsely saying had slept with the victim was represented by another member of Westchester County Legal Aid and specifically by the lawyer who was supposed to be supervising him on my case. So that conflict prevented the defense from asking him for a sample. It prevented the defense from um, calling him as a witness. Lastly, in terms of the confession, the interrogation had not been videotaped. It wasn't audio taped. There was no signed confession. It was just the cop's word for it. And so when they came to court, they left the threat and false promise out of their testimony. My lawyer wouldn't allow me to testify. And, you know, in terms of a confession, when you're defending a case where there's a false confession, you have to answer that confession. You have to explain that confession. You have to disprove that confession and then you bring it all together in your closing argument but he didn't do that sometimes he argued to the jury the confession never happened other times he argued to the jury that it did happen but that he was coerced and at still other times he was arguing that it was false so by taking an approach of just throwing things against the wall hoping that something stuck he had to have been standing there in front of the jury with no credibility at all yeah, absolutely. I mean, if you're given three different stories, if I'm on that jury, I'm thinking, all right, well, did it not happen at all? Did they, you know, coerce him in some kind of way or did he just lie to get out? I mean, that's three entirely different avenues that this story could have taken. Now, I got a couple questions to where we are now. Number one, and what year was this again? I'm sorry. 1990. 1990. 
So if there was, if the victim did sleep with you and another individual, wouldn't there still have been two DNA samples in there? I mean, like, so that one really don't hold up to me. If you're, if yours is not even in there, even if she, she was, or, or they were saying that she was, you know, promiscuous, yours should have been in there. And, and number two, how is, are you able to communicate? Because once that you left the interrogation room that day, you were locked up. You didn't get out. There was no bond for you or nothing. Correct. No, that's not correct. Okay. I was locked up, but I did get, I got bailed out after approximately 35 days. Okay. So you were out while you were preparing for court. Yes. Okay. Did, I mean, you know, and I'm not trying to get too deep in here, but was this a public defender? It was. No, let's get deep. Whatever you want to ask, let's ask. I have nothing to hide. Well, the the reason why I'm asking is obviously people know that public defenders are, are even the ones that really take their job seriously, and it sounds like yours did not. Um, they're very overworked. They don't have the budget to do what high-paid lawyers can do. So is getting a, a high-paid lawyer something that was kind of not available for you at the time? Correct. Uh, every law- Yeah, we spoke to several lawyers, and they all wanted $50,000 as a retainer, just to get started, just for openers. I know that very well. Yes. 50 grand. That, that number seems, I guess that's a standard for a case like this. Yeah, it would seem to be at least at that point. Yeah, it still is um, yeah. at, at least the 50 and that's just to take it. That's not even counting, you know, to get everything started. Most of them is 50 and then you want about a 10,000 retainer on top of that to get the ball rolling with, you know, investigations and, you know, interviews and, and things like that collection of evidence. So, if, and that's the bad part to where people don't have the financial capabilities to do that. You have to rely on public defenders. And if you catch one that's not really doing their job as the way they should, and even the ones that can do their job like they should, they really are bottlenecked to what they can do and what they can produce because they have so many cases and, and such a high workload. So that's where a lot of people fall victim and wind up confessing or taking a plea deal, which in turn ups the prosecutor's conviction rate, which in turn moves him higher up the, the corporate ladder. And it's, it's a really big web of deception that not a lot of people know about. Um, There's a couple of irregularities about my trial that I would like to mention for ab- a second. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So we talked before that how polygraph test results are not reliable nor admissible unless both sides agree. Right. We never agreed. But the judge came up with a backdoor rule whereby he said that, well, because this uh, confession happened while you were being polygraphed, he allowed the polygraphist to repeatedly tell the jury that I failed the polygraph when I denied committing the crime while banning my lawyer from cross-examining him on the methods that he used to form his opinion. So that was very prejudicial. That was one thing. And another was that the victim's clothes, including her bra, had been entered into evidence. And the jury asked to see the bra, which was important because that was one of the, that intersected with a statement that was coerced out of me in which I said that uh, I said that I ripped her bra off. So the jury asked to see the bra, and that was important because there's some bras, the way that they're made, you can't rip it off of a body. So once they asked to see the bra, that's when the judge said that the evidence had been left in the court over the weekend 
and that the janitors apparently thought it was garbage, and so they threw it out, and so it was no longer available. And so he refused to give me a mistrial. He refused to strike testimony about the bra, and he substituted uh, the uh, a photograph in which he said that you can almost see the bra. He substituted the picture for the bra itself. So you got an, I remember that I forgot and you can almost see this sounds like a, yeah. uh, Okay. And, 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 and and one, one more thing, right. We're almost, you know, we're almost doing theater of the absurd here. Yes. Uh, The third, the third thing is that on the third day of jury deliberation, they sent out a note asking the judge that if they could not come up with a unanimous verdict, would they be kept sequestered over the holiday over the Christmas holiday. Now, I learned many years later that at that point, the vote was 11 to 1 for a conviction. There was one holdout juror that thought I was innocent, but that they were pressuring him. And that after that, after that answer came back, that ratcheted the pressure up and nobody, including him, wanted to be there over the Christmas holiday. And so he switched his vote based on that. And as a result of that, I had been I was uh, I was I was wrongfully uh, convicted of a uh, murder and rape, right? and I was therefore. Go ahead, I'll let you comment. Oh, I was going to say, is that even accurate? I mean, I don't. I've never been on a jury. Um, is that even accurate that if a decision isn't reached, that they would be sequestered on a trial of that magnitude? They could have been sequestered, but to say that it would have been over the Christmas holiday, no, because. And I was convicted a couple of weeks before Christmas, and it's unfathomable that the jury deliberation would have continued to that point, and then they would have said, okay, stay in the hotel over, over the 24th, 25th, keep it going there until after New Year's, and we're going to report back on January 3rd and keep it going. That that simply wouldn't have happened. Mm-hmm. Now, on the day of the sentencing, I begged the judge to overturn the verdict because I was innocent, and I referenced the DNA to support my contention. And he actually told me on the record, maybe you are innocent. Now, you instinctively, you might think, well, that means he's going to exercise his discretion and overturn the conviction, which he could have done by reversing any number of rulings that he had made against me in the course of the trial. But instead, he took the easy way out, which was to give me a 15 to life sentence because I had been charged as an adult, tried as an adult, and therefore given that adult sentence and I was sent to a men's maximum security prison where I, where I remained for the next 16 years. How long did this um, trial take from the point where you were first arrested and you made bond and then you were found guilty? How long, what time gap was that? Approximately uh, eight to 10 months. Okay. So inside of a year, they had this all wrapped up nice and tight and you were found guilty. Yes, sir. What I mean, what was your thoughts going into the verdict? I mean, we're obviously, I'm assuming. I was expecting to be found not guilty. My mother and all my family members believed in the system. And they all kept telling me they were going to, you know, since you're innocent, you're going to be found not guilty. Don't, Don't worry about it. And I, at some point, I bought into that. And so I was fully expecting to be found not guilty. And after he read out the verdict, I mean, what had to go through your mind? Well, so the first three charges I was found not guilty of. And then 
the next I heard them say guilty, you know, and, and guilty and guilty. And, you know, what went through my head was I thought, well, wait, wait, wait a minute. No, I, I can't. I, I didn't hear that right. I, I, I must have missed the word not. I must have missed the word not. They couldn't have said said guilty. So that went through my mind. And then I, I felt like I was in a nightmarish alternative reality because to my way of thinking, at least up until that point in time, I thought only guilty people were convicted. But instead, I was convicted and I was taken into custody and ultimately given that sentence that I told you about. Wow. Um, and how I'm assuming you've probably done a little time in what a prison before you were shipped off to the maximum security prison or how did, what was your, well, I, well, I, well, I stayed, was in, I was in the County jail. County, from, county jail once yeah. I was, once I was found guilty, I was at the County jail and I stayed there until I was sentenced. And then a couple of weeks after that, I was then sent to the state prison. And which prison was that? Well, I went to Downstate Correctional Facility, which is a reception center. So they evaluate you, issue your supplies, and determine what prison you're going to be sent to first. And then after that, I was sent to Elmira Correctional Facility, which had the reputation in New York as being a, a junior gladiator school. Wow. So tough customers you're walking in there with. Absolutely. Yeah. I'm 17 years old and, you know, I'm a kid from the suburbs. I I might have been in three or two, two or three fights my whole life, and now I'm in a maximum security prison with fully formed adults. There were a lot of adolescents there running wild, but to be sure, there were also a lot of really dangerous adults. And then I, it was, so it was not only dangerous for me, but just in general, but then also I had that bullseye on my back because there's a vigilante mentality where people convicted of sex offenses. So mm-hmm. I was always in fear that people would. Uh, discover what I was incarcerated for, and that would be a motivation for them to assault me, uh, which actually happened. You know, I, I, maybe like five or six times over the course of 16 years, I was assaulted. One time I nearly lost lost my life. Uh, food was terrible. Sometimes it was uh, burned. Other times it wasn't fully cooked. Um, you know, the guards were not professional. They used to scream at the inmates. And, you know, there were three or four stabbings or cuttings every day. They used to, if you would get in trouble for breaking a prison rule, they would keep you in the cell 23 hours a day out of 24. They would send you less food. Sometimes it would be three or four days old. They would put you in a small caged area with maybe a pull-up bar in it if you were lucky. And you could not use the phone on that status. You could not purchase food items or hygienic items. And beyond dealing with that physicality of the times when I was beat up, I was subjected to those sanctions because in prison, if you were defending yourself, you know, or trying to defend yourself, then that obviously means that you are fighting. Mm-hmm. Wow. How, how long were you in there before you had your first altercation? Because as you alluded to, when you go in, especially with a, a rape conviction on a, on a, on a young child, even though you were a child yourself, that does put a bullseye on your back. The inmates in there know what you're in there for. They're they're not dummies. They have ways of, of finding out what you're in there for and what you're charged with. How long was it before you had your first altercation? Uh, approximately four months. Wow. And were we, did they try to stab you, or was it just a, a beating, or how? It was just a, it was just a beating. Thank God, it was just a beating. Now, when you about lost your life, tell us about that one. Yeah. So. I got hit multiple times on the side of my head with uh, a 10 pound weight plate that you might put on. Like you do like a, like a flat bench or incline. Mm -hmm. Jeez. Were you in the gym? 
I was in the, I was, no, I was in the, I was in the, I was in the day room, which was near where the small yard was, where the weight equipment was. Okay. Who, um, did you, did you coincide with anyone in there? Like, did you find someone, you know, to, I guess, talk with, to help pass the time? I mean, obviously, you know, a lot of people gratefully haven't, that haven't had to experience living inside a prison. They go off with the movie show. The movies show that when you go in, you need to find not necessarily a gang or a group, but somewhere where you fit in. Were you able to find someone that you could, you know, talk to and 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 hang out with in there? Or were you kind of a loner in prison as well? Um, I was somewhere in the middle. I mean, I didn't try to be popular, so I minded my business. I kept my head down, but right. at the same time, I did I did have people that I socialized with to some extent. Um, you know, there was a crew of people we used to play basketball and there was a crew of people I'd play chess with or play ping pong with. And there was other similarly, you know, I, I like to watch sports on TV. So there's like a group of people you have that one thing in common with the interaction is, you know, somewhat limited, but it's still something. Uh, so there was that aspect of it. Um, but there also were a couple of other people that I just socialized with in general. I mean, there was one other prisoner there named Frank Sterling and he, he was innocent also. and Every six weeks for, you know, we would get together and we would keep each other. We kept each other going for 13 and a half years. I mean, half the conversation was about keeping our morale. And the next half of the conversation, we be like a brainstorm session about what was the next move to make to try to overturn our convictions and regain our freedom. And I just want to mention that I was not naively believing that someone else was innocent just because I was. Uh, you know, Frank actually was proven innocent through DNA a couple of years after me. He, he did 18 years. So, uh, you know, there was that there was that aspect to it. What is your your mindset in prison? Because obviously someone in, in that environment, like you said, 17 year old kid from the suburbs, this is the biggest turnaround culture shock someone can imagine, especially in a very violent environment. What was your your mindset? And I'm not sure if you're a man of faith or, or what you believed in, but what was your your outlook on that? I mean, I know it had to be hard, but obviously you kept faith and you kept a drive. What was it like during that time? Yeah, sure. So, so look, look, I did believe in God, and without question, first and foremost, that was the reason why I was able to continue. Um, but that having been said, I want to share some other things. Yeah. Uh, so, firstly— in my mind, I wasn't doing a 15 to life sentence. I thought I was just doing a year or two to the next to the next court proceeding would happen in the next appeal, which I was sure I was going to win because I was innocent and I naively believed in the system. So I used to go to the law library and study the law, and that gave a sense of, of, of comfort and empowerment. I used to collect articles about other people who were exonerated, and I would use that as motivation to keep going. I, I um, used to read from... 1998 forward to 2006, I read three or four nonfiction books a week. Uh, I took advantage of the educational programs that they had. I got a GED and associates in a year towards the bachelor's before the before the funding of college education for prisoners was cut. So I wasn't able to you know pursue that further. But then I kept taking the vocational trade. So even though the curriculum was obsolete prior to my setting foot in a class, but I did that. And then I also uh, I engaged in a couple of delusions. I mean, when I would play basketball or ping pong or chess, I would pretend like I was a professional player and so were the other people. 
but it wasn't really kid like kids fooling around on a playground. This was more that I, I needed to get out of the prison for a couple hours mentally, and that's the box that my mind created, and the utilization of euphemisms. So it's not the prison guards, it's the correction officers, it's not the prison warden, it's the superintendent, and it's not I'm going to my prison assignment in the morning and my prison assignment in the afternoon. I'm going to work or I'm going uh, I'm going to school, and and it beyond, and then also uh, I used to collect pictures of nature scenes and. I would hang them on the wall and just kind of travel there, uh, travel there mentally. I, I listened to sports talk radio on the weekends, but it wasn't listening to sports talk radio. This was this was like a lifeline. Uh, this was like a lifeline to uh, to to the to the outside. In 1998, Elmira allowed prisoners to purchase televisions, and while my TV stayed off for the most part because I was doing legal work myself and writing letters looking for help and I was reading nonfiction books, nonetheless, there were certain programs that I used to watch every week. And again, I made use of delusion and I would pretend that certain programs that I watched every week that I was actually visiting with friends. What was your favorite so program things, to watch? Uh, uh, the Practice, which was a legal, David E. Kelly was a legal thing and the defense used to win. Yeah. So I liked that. Um, I did watch a lot of Law and Order, the, the original one. I never liked that because it seemed like every case ended in a conviction. But I liked it because yeah. it showed the underhandedness of the cops and DA. But another thing on a, on a much lighter note, uh, I would say just from a purely recreational point of view, uh, I, I, I liked watching SmackDown on Thursdays. Uh, WWE. Yeah, yeah. yeah but to add one more thing on the uh, prison thing. Uh, I would describe it as a nonstop obstacle course featuring the guards, prisoners, and and other inmates as um, obstacles to the main goal, which was to overturn the conviction and regain my freedom. But it wasn't just simply the absence of freedom. I, I had to repeatedly fight off feelings of hopelessness, helplessness, thoughts of giving up, suicidal, uh, suicidal ideation. Yeah, for sure. I mean, I, I can't imagine. It's, it's bad enough for people that did do something and you know you have to go there and do your time, and you know you're not coming out for a long time. But to be in that situation and know you did not do anything wrong has to be one of the worst feelings on the planet uh, for someone like that. I mean, it's, it's got to be. 100%. Yes, the experience of doing time while you're innocent is not the same thing as doing time when you did something. I met a lot of people who said, look, Jeff, I did what I did. I got caught. Now I got punished, so I'm not crying about it. I have to accept it. I'm just going to make the best of this and try to go home as quick as I can. But I could never get to that place because I knew that I was innocent. I knew that I didn't do it. And I, I didn't know how long it would go on for. I mean, my sentence was 15 to life, which meant that you have to do 15 years minimal and then go to the parole board to then be considered for discretionary release on parole. The life part of it meant that there was never a point in time where they were legally obligated to release me. So in the course of doing 16 years, you know, I lost seven appeals. Then when I went to the parole board, because I maintained my innocence rather than expressing remorse and taking responsibility, uh, I was denied parole, hence doing 16 years, not 15. And they told me up here, you know, they told me to come back in two years. But fortunately, I just did one more year 
uh, I wound up, what are the letters? I, I, I wrote letters for four years. You know, my, my appeals were over. I wrote letters for four years. And then the parole board slammed the door shut. Um, but so that last year was the hardest. But I ultimately ended up with the help with the Innocence Project. They agreed to represent me pro bono. And that was the first of three keys. The second key was the uh, district attorney of Westchester at the time, uh, Janine Pirro, um, who, who blocked me in the seven appeals, would not allow me to get further testing. She left office. And the third key is when they took the DNA and they that already didn't match me and put it in the data bank, it matched the actual perpetrator whose DNA was only in the data bank because left free while I was doing time for his crime. He killed a second victim uh, three and a half years later after killing the victim in my case. So on September 20th, 2006, the conviction was overturned. I was released. I reported back to court November 2nd, 2006, at which point all charges were dismissed against me on actual innocence grounds. And the actual perpetrator went on to be uh, arrested and convicted of the crime. And ultimately, a report, an independent report, was issued uh, by four experts that outlined every every step of the way that the system failed from the arrest to the conviction to the preservation of that conviction for 16 years. Now, and correct me if I'm wrong, they didn't take you on your first attempt to contact the Innocence Project because for people that aren't familiar, and, and what the sad thing about it is a lot of people don't really know a lot about the Innocence Project. They specialize in getting convictions overturned, mostly by use of DNA. However, in your case, your DNA was never even submitted for evidence in the court. So weren't you denied a couple times for them to help you? Yes and no. Let me put some color to that. So, I mean, the DNA was tested before the trial. It didn't match me. Right. Um, so it was admitted in, in the court as, okay. as evidence. It's just their rubric of case selection is exactly like you said. They only take a case if there's DNA evidence. So they would identify cases where there was something to test and then test it and then present that evidence back to the court under the newly discovered evidence argument. That was not an option for me because it wasn't newly discovered. The jury already knew that. So you're right. I did apply to them. I got turned down. I made the rounds amongst all the innocence entities and got turned down. What changed was the DNA data bank. So that's what allowed it to be something new, put in the data bank and hope that it matched somebody somebody else. Okay. And now who was that person you were dealing with again? Was that At the innocence project? Yeah. Oh, that was, yeah, that was my primary attorney there was uh, Nina Morrison. Nina Morrison. Okay. Now she, uh, how grateful are you to Nina Morrison? Because a lot of people, like we've said it time and time throughout this interview, when you're by, when you're in prison, largely really the only people that are going to be there for you is, is your immediate family. And sometimes even those relationships can, can waver because you're limited to just writing a letter and making phone calls. So for someone to put the effort in to trying to help you, it's it's you're extremely grateful, but I don't just know how much you how much gratitude you can have for a person. What is your relationship now with her now? Oh, we're we're still close. We still we still speak to each other on the phone. I'm extremely great, grateful to her. I mean, in a lot of ways, I owe her my life. But her and you know the founders of the Innocence Project, Bereshek, Peter Newfeld, uh, the intake worker Maggie Taylor, who. Represented my case three times and even getting them to take it 
the investigator, Claudia Whitman, who lobbied them from outside the organization to take it. So many people had a, had a, had a hand in it, and I'm extremely grateful to all of them. Now, when did you get the word, like, were you in prison? Obviously, you were in prison when you found out it was getting returned. But, like, did you have an idea all this was going on? Were you going to trial with, with them to try to get this stuff done? Well, it's not a trial. It's a, it's it was a post conviction motion, but okay. But I knew I knew that I knew that they got the district attorney to agree to do the results, but the but uh, to do the further testing. But it wasn't scheduled to happen for another month. Okay. So my lawyer came up to see me, and she told me that you know the items had been tested. I'm like, well, what are you talking about? They're not supposed to be tested for another month. And she said, no, they, they tested it ahead of time. Uh, the results matched the other. The, match the actual perpetrator, and you're go, you're going home tomorrow. And I said, no, I'm not. And we went back and forth three times, and she held my hand for the next three and a half hours. I had this uh, mental paralysis; my mind was spinning, and one, you know, and I was articulating out loud all these random thoughts, and one thing had nothing to do with the other, and none of it had anything to do with me going home. And every now and then, she would break in and say, "Are, are you ready to talk about tomorrow?" No, no, no. <laughs> Not talking about tomorrow. Not going home. Don't play with me. No, you know. And eventually, what made it real was he said, "Look, it's it's almost time for the visit to be over. I have to get your shoe size, your suit size. Uh, there's a ton of work to do with the media prepping them." And I felt better. I believed it for about five minutes, and then a different thought came in my head. I thought now a new concern came in, which was I thought that. Uh, something was going to happen between that day and the next, and that they were going to change their mind and do what they always did, which was uh, fight me and win. Mm -hmm. Knowing that and knowing you had to spend one more night, like how did you even sleep? I mean, because no. obviously I would imagine not because of what no, you just said. No, I didn't said. sleep. Yeah. <laughs> I didn't sleep, no. And, you know, I, it was crazy because I went out to recreation that night and, the Innocence Project had left an intern to stay back at their office specifically for the purpose of taking a collect call. And so I'm on the phone with this stranger I've never spoke to before, and I'm talking about tomorrow, and I'm talking about going home, but all my visual cues were everything of the prison. I mean, the uh, the gate, the barbed wire, the officers, the prisoners in the uniform, everything like that. So it was kind of, it was, it was, it was kind of crazy. And when I they brought me my. Uh, they gave me a. They brought me a bunch of like seat plastic see-through garbage bags to pack your property up, and that's when this thought came across my head. I remember when I had first went upstate to to a prison, and and I had heard a couple of prisoners talking to each other from from the from behind their cells, and one person told another. He said, "Man, if I win my appeal, it's going to be like somebody in here hit the lottery. I'm going to give that person." everything you know and so for some reason that thought i remember that and i decided i was going to live another man's dream and so i put a few things like my legal paperwork and a couple of essentials in one bag and everything else i packed on on these other bags and you know when my cell door opened i ran down the equivalent of what would be like a half a block and and i brought a bag to somebody that was just starting out their time that didn't have any uh support from the outside and I, I ran that half a block like three or four times, leaving everything. And, you know, he was like, oh, my God, take it. And I just hurry up and 
put it in your cell before the guard comes because you know one prisoner is not allowed to give another prisoner uh anything so that was that aspect of it um you know in terms of when i was uh released you know um i remember this the sky was blue i didn't see any any clouds and we went to a press conference there was a ton of media and i remember my first words were you know is this really happening like I thought, like all right, well, I, I guess I've finally gone gone ahead and done it, right? I, I I guess that I've finally managed to lose my mind, and I'm going to wake up from this delusion, and I'm still going to see the cell walls and the cell bars, and I'm still going to be in prison and hear the keys and see the guards. So it was a surreal moment, but I ultimately everything I ever wanted to say in 16 years, but could never get anybody to hear. Um, all came out. And just when I thought I was finishing up, another thought came across my mind. I ultimately held the media there for two, two and a half hours. Wow. I mean, I can't imagine the relief that, that came over you when you got out. But, you know, the, the sad part about it is when you get out, you know, obviously you're gaining your freedom and you're back on the outside world. But you've lost so much of your life. What was the biggest differences from when you went in to when you came out? Technology. I mean, GPS, cell phones, internet hadn't been created. Neighborhoods looked different. Uh, people I knew in that neighborhood didn't live there any anymore. And the buildings, houses, and structures looked, they were all different, except there was some that was the same. So collectively, I felt like I was in an alternative world, one that I didn't belong to. There was a psychological after effects. It's normal to have PTSD, panic attack, anxiety, uh, feeling of having been frozen in time, feeling of processing things slower. Uh, it was awkward when I'd meet up with my extended family because they had either ne never come see me or had come to see me once and then like disappear for three years. So that was awkward. I was always passed over for gainful employment. I was released with nothing. You know, you can seek compensation, but it ultimately took me five years. I lacked stability of housing, so I was a couple of weeks away from a homeless shelter. But at simultaneous to all of those difficulties, and there was also stigma, by the way. I mean, no one doubted my innocence, but it was more like, well, you'd, you were in prison wrongfully for 16 years. Yes, but you were there for 16 years. So how much of that rubbed off on you? Was it safe to be alone someplace with right. you? So definitely a challenge in terms of personal relationships, and it was certainly uh, lonely. At the same time, I kind of found myself, I mean, I uh, got a job as a weekly columnist writing about wrongful conviction and justice reform issues. I started speaking across the country. I was making some money doing that, but neither of those things were enough money to really, you know, survive on. I mean, certainly speaking, gates were not a consistent form of income. I uh, got a scholarship for Mercy College. I finished the bachelor's degree, which I was 10 classes short of, and uh, I started meeting with elected officials talking about wrongful conviction prevention legislation. Uh, I decided to trade privacy for awareness. So uh, doing, hence doing media interviews. I mean, most people have an initial hit of five minutes of fame and then it disappears, but I wanted to keep it going as long as I could. Mm -hmm. But the hope that that ultimately would lead to policy changes. And so uh, I did, that was my life for five years, a difficult life for five years. Um, I, it was particularly challenging for me because I had never before lived on my own. I hadn't had a driver's license. I never went shopping, wrote a check, balanced the budget. So all those things were challenges. Uh, but at the same time, uh, I uh, got the bachelor's and I did get a master's degree from John Jay College. My, my thesis is on wrongful conviction, cause and reform. And eventually I was compensated after about five years. And 
I used some of the money to start the Jeffrey Deskovic Foundation for Justice, which would continue what I was doing as an individual, but uh, be involved in the exonerative aspect uh, of it. So we opened our doors in 2011, and uh, we had gotten 11 people home, helped pass three laws. Uh, I was an advisory board member of a coalition group called It Could Happen to You, which the foundation was part of, and we helped pass an additional six laws. So we had 12 cases. So I have 12 cases active and doing policy work to the coalition, being active in New York, Pennsylvania, and California. And the best part, we come to, we come to the best part of all of this, um, which is uh, at some point I became uh, not satisfied with sitting in the front row of the courtroom, even though I may have worked on the case with the lawyer or even been the, the, the boss of the lawyer, so to speak, uh, got tired of having to sit on the front row. So I wanted to be able to sit at the defense table, represent some of the clients, make some of the arguments, hence going to law school and becoming an attorney. And so I've entered some cases that were started before I got the law license. I've entered some of those cases as co-counsel, and I'm the lead attorney in a few other cases. And, and then there's some where, where I'm co-counsel that I, I wanted to share with you. Um, this will be going to lead into another person. So I did have my first win as an attorney, the first wrongful conviction overturned as an attorney, albeit as co-counsel to the lead attorney, Oscar Michelin, who's uh, advisory board member of the foundation. So um, just a few, just uh, we have Andre Brown. We overturned, we helped overturn Andre Brown's wrongful conviction. He, he was in prison for 22 years, 23 overall, and he's been home a short amount of time. He's actually joins us uh, today. Maybe Andre, you could uh, unmute yourself. Andre, you're still there? Okay. Yeah, I'm here. Good okay, evening. How you doing, Mr. Brown? I'm doing well. How you doing today? Man, I'm I'm having a good night. This is a great interview, and I've been waiting to get to this part of it because Jeffrey shared with me your fantastic news of recently being exonerated, and I told him that I would be more than happy to to have you on the show now, to be fair, I think you probably deserve your own show like I'm doing here with Jeffrey. But real quick for our listeners, kind of give us a, a overview maybe of like what your charges were, um, what they sentenced you to, and then how you came into contact with Jeffrey and, and his foundation and, you know, what it feels like now to be exonerated. Um, I want to thank you, first of all, for even having me on the show today, you and Jeff both, Absolutely. for giving me this small segment. I was charged with two attempted murders of two individuals. Um, the crime itself happened on Allerton Avenue in the Bronx, and I was given a 40-year sentence. Um, during the course of this crime, because I knew I had nothing to do with this crime, I walked in freely with an attorney to the precinct, to the 49th precinct. At that time, the officers decided to keep me. And I was incarcerated for 23 years of my life. Wow. Now, now, wait a minute. Did you do a podcast with Jason Flom while you were still in prison? I actually did a podcast with Maggie Freeling. Yes. At the time, Maggie, she wasn't working for Jason at the time. But yes, I did do a podcast with Maggie Freeland. I heard your story while you were still in prison. I just put this together. When he said that name, I didn't put it together. But when you said the details of the case, I remember because you went there and they, you didn't. Wasn't there a situation where the, the cop told you something specific to do and you went against it? 
Yeah. Um, That's they asked me specifically um, all types of questions. I refused to answer any questions because I didn't know anything about the crime itself. Right. And you know, they knew about my injury. I was shot in an unrelated crime that ultimately caused me not to be able to commit the crime at hand. And they knew all of this evidence, but still decided to put me forth behind bars. Yes. Okay. That was okay. I just put all that together when you were, when you were detailing that. Well, I'm glad you're out, man. Um, how did you come to get in contact with Jeffrey here? I was brought into the fray with Jeffrey and the foundation through my attorney, Oscar Michelin, who is also great friends with Jeff. Um, Oscar brought Jeff on board and it has been such a pleasure working with him in understanding the law the way he does in being so active in case law and being just a professional. He's on the ground, hands-on, ready and prepared and willing to do what it takes to get you out. That's that's fantastic, man. And I, I know that you're excited. How long have you been out? Only been out one week today. One week today. Yes. By the way, this is his first podcast uh, interview, by the really? way. So, yeah. Just want to add a little bit of just a little bit of color for people listening. So there were, you know, two witnesses against Andre and one, one of them, um, one of them was a woman and she said she was, a, you know, she was on a certain street and she was there in her car at, at, a, at a red light and she saw two people run, run past her. And she said that while one of the individuals was running, they, he lifted his ski mask up. So it was just for a couple of seconds. But the issue with her testimony is that, well, number one, the, the street where she said that the sh- shooting happened at as to the second victim was not the street where the crime happened. Secondly, there what there is no traffic light on that street. There's only uh, there's only a, a a stop sign. Number two, she didn't immediately come forward with what with what she saw. She it did impact her psychologically. There was rumors that went around in the community that that Andre was responsible for this. And so it's possible she could have heard that. And then that was like a type of confirmation bias. So that's, and plus by her own statement, it was just like a, a couple of seconds. Another asked, no, the other witness was one of the, um, was one of the victims and Andre not being able to run as a key. So the actual perpetrator descended a subway stop and ran three or four blocks, you know, shoots one victim and, uh, and, and stands over them and fires, fires uh, multiple rounds after that, then turns and runs more blocks faster, you know, and, and catches up to shoot this other individual. Being unable to run, having dropped foot, he would have been unable to run. Now, the second person who was the second victim who was shot, so when he was shot, the the, the bullet um, severed his spinal, spinal cord. So he claims that what with his spinal cord, you know, severed, as he's falling down, he's somehow able to turn his head around and, 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 he, and he sees for a couple of seconds. And that doesn't work, you know, medically, yeah. you know, um, yeah. but um, yeah, so that doesn't, so that really didn't, uh, that really doesn't work. And, and it's just a couple of seconds. So uh, here's the evidence that we had. So first of all, just the, you know, the, we got at the evidentiary hearing, we, we called the, not a medical expert, but the actual surgeon who did the surgery on Andre. Second of all, we found the actual perpetrator who we found a picture of him and he looked exactly like Andre at, at the time. And we found uh, two witnesses that identified him. 
the other alternative suspect, and that was all corroborated by ballistics evidence. So there was three shootings on January. It was the 11th, the 13th, and the 15th. So there was a shootout on the 11th. Then on the on the 13th, one of the victims was arrested with an illegal gun. It was proven by ballistics that that gun participated in the shooting on the 11th. And then there was, you know, the crime on the 15th. So it was the same people. This was actually a turf war over who was going to have the right to sell marijuana. So all of that uh, constituted our our, uh, our our evidence. What his um, you know actual innocence claim rested on. What the newly discovered evidence claim rested on, and what our Last argument, the ineffective assistance of counsel uh, rested on. So, uh, and just a lot of bad faith on the Bron part of the Bronx DA. I mean, first of all, in not agreeing to drop the choosing for to get, at the minimum give him a reversal, just in light of the medical evidence alone. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah. Then they wouldn't agree to do a virtual hearing. So when the pandemic happened, they wouldn't agree to that, even though courts were operating virtually and that they, in fact, were participating in some virtual proceedings in other cases. So that cost Andre an additional year and a half in prison just to wait to get, the, you know, just to get to the hearing. They never laid a glove on the surgeon. They never presented their own experts. So again, fighting to the end. And then once the conviction was overturned, you know, trying, you know, we were arguing that Andre should be released on his own recognizance, and they're asking for $750,000 bond, $500,000, you know, cash. So bad faith. And now they're going to appeal. They're, they're appealing. So the judge ruled for Andre um, on the ineffective assistance to counsel claim. And we were disappointed that he didn't give us on actual innocence. I mean, we feel that with all of that, you know, from medical to alternative to witnesses to ballistics, that, that was this was the case to do that in. But they rejected that. They rejected the newly discovered, but they did give it to us on the ineffective. So uh, he's not exonerated, but he is. The conviction is overturned and, and he is released. But but they're appealing. And to reinstate the conviction, the appellate court would have to rule that it's not ineffective to present medical evidence showing that you're physically unable to commit the crime. I mean, that has zero chance of, of winning. Right. The vindictiveness continues is what my point is. Yeah, and I I almost I would be shocked if they did refile it. I mean, I know a lot of times they're upset when things like that happen because as we spoke of at the beginning of our interview, and Andre, I'm sure you can attest to this too, when when mistakes are made, especially in the judicial system, they do not like to admit it. They try to cover it up at all costs, as in Jeffrey's case when, you know, su supposedly losing the bra, because I guess they just let janitors walk in and out of courtrooms and throw away evidence in a murder trial um, and things like in, in your case. They try everything they can to make it look like they're telling the truth and you're the one that's wrong. Absolutely. You know, what Jeff alluded to was absolutely right. We There was an alternate suspect in this case named Bonkers. This individual had a shootout three days prior to the actual shooting on the 15th of January, 1999. And ballistics reports from that shootout on January 11th, I should say four days, matched ballistics from the shootout on the 15th. It should also be mentioned that one of the complaining witnesses himself was caught with the other gun that he was shooting out with this alternate suspect named Bonkers. These individuals engaged in this shootout on the 11th, 
on the 13th, the complaining witness himself was caught with one of the weapons. And on the 15th now, what transpired is this individual bonkers went and gunned down these two complaining witnesses. And I became the suspect in this case as a college student going to the Bar Manhattan Community College. Wow. How does it uh how does it feel, you know, to finally be out and, and what's your next step? Because obviously you've probably been dreaming for this day for 22, 23 years from the day you went in, I would imagine. What is your what is your next step? My next step is, as I discussed with Jeff, we're moving forward towards exonerating my name. I need a clean slate, although um Judge Lewis vacated the judgment itself, I still don't feel comfortable at all with the ruling that he gave. I express my um, disappointment to my legal team. Um, My family has suffered tremendously going forward. And what we want is for the district attorney of the Bronx to admit that I'm actually innocent of this crime and move forward with a full exoneration as it should have been from the beginning. Well, we certainly hope that you get that. And, uh, if you would, you know, be so kind, if you want to, we can make arrangements after this show. If you would like to come on our show and, and tell your story, I would be more than happy to have you. I think that is one of the, the things that I, I really want to try to start doing more of is because I have some experience with this myself personally is getting these stories out there because, a lot of people do not realize that it happens and it happens a lot. Does it happen 10 million times a year? You know, no, not quite that many, but still one is too much. And so many people, I think until they're involved in it, they don't get the the impact. Like you just mentioned, not only that it has on you, your family financially. And then as we spoke in Jeff's situation, even if you get out, you know, many years later, then what you're, you're left with the, that stigma of being in prison and what you were accused of, like almost like you still did it, even though you were, you know, exonerated. And it's very, very hard to, to get your life back on track, to get things back in order because you've lost a huge significant portion of your life. And, you know, you are more than welcome to come on the show and and tell your story at any point in time, my friend. I mean, I thank you for that invitation. It is greatly appreciated. I want to thank Jeff for even inviting me on the podcast with him just to give a segment of my story. And of course, I would like to return and give the full story for your viewers, because I think it's imperative that they understand that the criminal justice system continues to have individuals locked away. You know, I believe it is called a fortress economy now because this is all about a dollar. You know, when you know an individual is innocent, and you continue to hold on to him for 23 years of his life, it's it's just irresponsible by all parties, all government officials, and all agencies who are supposed to protect life and respect the Constitution itself. Absolutely. I agree 100%. And, Andre, I can't tell you how much I appreciate you stopping in on the show and, and giving us a little piece of your segment, and I look forward to having a, a longer-length uh, conversation with you. I appreciate your time today. Thanks so much. Yes, sir. Thank you. All right. So, Andre, you know, 12 overall for the foundation in terms of helping people regain their freedom, you know, 
first for me as an attorney, albeit co-counsel and, you know, lots of, Oscar and I have, you know, five other cases together we're working on and hoping that Andre is just the first of many people in the course of my legal career that I helped exonerate. This is why I slogged through uh, law school and it was very, uh, it was very different. And as Andre will tell you himself when he comes on another segment, um, you know, Andre has aspirations of, you know, getting his bachelor's degree and becoming a lawyer and continuing doing the same thing uh, that I'm doing. So hopefully we can keep this thing, uh, we keep this thing going. And because uh, there's no, there's uh, no shortage of cases and there's too few of us that are doing this type of work. So, you know, Andre's commitment to fighting for justice, not just continuing for himself, but, you know, systemic and wrongful conviction prevention and freeing people, you know, already on the front lines within this first week of freedom, you know, contributing to those efforts. Yeah, most definitely. Uh, real quick before we wrap up, Jeff, just a, just a couple questions. Have you had any conversation with any of the people that was involved in your case that, that really kind of railroaded you, such as maybe the cops that were interrogating you or the judge that, you know, seems like he kind of purposely hid evidence. Have you had any sort of communication with them since you've been out? Short answer is no. To put just a little bit more color to it, I mean, you, I brought, you know, I, brought, I did bring lawsuits against everybody involved in what happened. And when you're a litigant, you're not supposed to communicate with those parties. Uh, none of the people involved in what happened ever apologized to me. I did get a symbolic apology by the district attorney, but that was not the district attorney, when I was convicted, I got a symbolic apology from the prosecutor, but that was the prosecutor in the courtroom when the conviction was overturned and dismissed. It was not from the prosecutor who convicted me or any of the prosecutors who fought my appeals. Uh, same thing with the judge. That was the judge that overturned the conviction. It was not the same judge that was involved in, in uh, that presiding, presided over the trial. The only person I ever got an apology from, ironically, was from the actual perpetrator who claimed that had he known I was in prison for his crime, he would have come forward. But really that that apology really didn't mean anything because he mixed it with a lie. You know, that Big Skill was a small city. This was a high profile case. Everybody was speaking about it. I don't believe that there's any way that he could have not known that I had been arrested and ultimately convicted for the crime that he committed. Right. I think okay. Your audio froze or the the video had froze up for just a second, but it's good. Um, you mentioned earlier you you was able to reach a settlement um, after a period of about five years. That's correct. There can't. I don't really know how you put a price on your time in incarceration. Do you feel and and you don't have to tell us what was awarded, but do you feel as though it was? the right amount because I don't really know how you put a dollar amount on that. Well, you really can't, you really can't put a dollar figure on it. I mean, there's no amount of money that would be worth giving up 16 years. I mean, to crystallize, I miss births, deaths, weddings. I didn't graduate high school. I didn't go to the high school prom. I didn't finish college education at a more traditional age. I didn't, I wasn't well on my way. Uh, in a career or on my way to financial freedom. And, you know, I didn't, I didn't start a family. So, you know, I, I would be willing to not just give all the money back, but I would be willing to go into debt for the, for the amount, you know, uh, cause you can't put a price tag on it. I mean, that said, 
you know, I lived five years of hell without compensation. And I can tell you that my life post exoneration uh, between the time period in which I had no compensation and the time period since then, it's like night and day. Mm-hmm. So it is an important tool in trying to put things back together. And it's, it's a, it allows me to spend my time pursuing freeing all the wrongfully convicted people, pursuing policy changes aimed at preventing that. I was able to pay my way through law school to get the law degree. I paid my student debt off to get the, you know, the master's degree, which I obtained just with the idea that the additional credential would make me a better advocate. So I don't, I don't feel dissatisfied with the, with the financial amount that I ultimately walked away from. I heard before you and I ever actually spoke and I didn't know it was your story. I seen an interview you did on the concrete podcast. Yeah, that's correct. I, I did do an interview with the con- on the Concrete Podcast, and, yes. And I don't know if you remember this particular phrase exactly, but it was something along the lines, you were talking percentages of people that were wrongfully convicted. And, yeah. and you made the comparison that if those percentages were put on the times that the percentages of failed airplane rides, that there would be a lot less people flying. Yes, you, what was that statement? Uh, close to what you said. That, yeah. that, you what know, was the if, percentages? I forgot the number. Which yeah, said. I, I believe. Well, I believe that the so the actual percentage of wrongfully convicted people is not something that's that's knowable, right? Because you can only count the exonerations, not not the wrongful convictions, right? Nine, uh, Nineteen people that I did time with that were exonerated either before me or after me. So I think the wrongful the percentage of the wrongful convictions is fifteen to twenty percent. Now, granted, I'm kind of on an island with that, but the flow of anecdotal evidence seems to be flowing my way. Mm-hmm. Seems like there's two or three exonerations happening across the country. There's scores of cases being dropped all over the place throughout the five boroughs just based on dirty cops, you know, planning evidence and lying and being exposed for that. Uh, so my statement is, you know, if, you know, and there's other figures. I mean, some people say 5%, some people say 2.5%, some people say half a percent, 1%, 2%, well, whatever the percentage is, okay? I think my figure is correct or I wouldn't say it, but no matter what it is, okay? If, if uh, you know, there's been more than um, more than 3,000, there's more than 3,100 exonerations across the U.S. just from 1989 forward, last time I checked the... Uh, National Registry of Exoneration. But if we had had that many airplane crashes, <laughs> I don't think people would be flying. We might even ground all the planes until we could figure out what's what's causing all these plane crashes. But yet there doesn't seem to be the same level of urgency, you know, when it comes to passing legislation aimed at preventing wrongful convictions so that, you know, we don't have to keep having people go through what I go through, what I, what I went through. Now, and that that's very powerful. And that's a very good statement because I think until somebody can put it in a context like that, that someone can relate to, because thankfully not every kind everybody can relate being wrongfully convicted and being in prison for something that they didn't do. And, and God willing, they never do. But a lot of times you don't put yourself in those situations until you're unfortunately in those situations. Now, you mentioned the Deskovic Foundation. If people want to help support, you know, getting people exonerated, you know, helping people out in these types of situations, 
Where can they go to find that, help you donate? What can they do to get involved? Yeah, so they can go to the website, www.deskovic, D-E-S-K-O-V-I-C.org. That's our website. Uh, you, you can follow us also. We're on, we're on Instagram and uh, on, on, uh, also on uh, Facebook. But people can help in a variety of ways. I mean, obviously, don't, donations is one thing. But another thing, if you work at a corporation and they do corporate philanthropy, you could suggest that, that uh, they consider us. Uh, to uh, be a recipient. We are a 501c3, so there is a tax break. So that's one thing. People can also volunteer their time and services. There's something called the in-kind donation where you can perform tasks for the foundation pro bono, and you could even get a tax write-off for that. You can value your services at a certain amount. Uh, my biggest challenge in terms of trying to fundraise is, you know, I, I need third parties who can serve as connectors to people who have capacity. I just want to get into the conversation. Look, this is my background. Here's my credentials. Here's the foundation's track record. Here's where we'd like to go. Is this something that you would be potentially interested in or not? So there's that aspect to it. Uh, you know, the, 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 the networking. Uh, we do have a crowdfunding us, uh, page, which I have the text here in my background, my crazy dream. What if there was? 25,000 people that were willing to donate 3 to $5 a month on a recurring basis. I mean, who's going to really feel that from their pocket? But if we have that larger volume of people doing that, that would give us close to a million-dollar budget recurring, and we could hire additional attorneys, paralegals, investigators, other essential personnel, so we could get more people out um, like, like Andre. If you have a podcast, a show, a blog, blog talk radio, uh, you, can, you can certainly – Help us get the word out that way, or suggest it to people uh, that that uh, uh, that do. But other services that we need certainly uh, grant writing, help with so grant writing, help with social media. Those things are those things are also needed. If uh, you're in a legal profession, you're retired, and you know you want to help a good cause. I mean, you can certainly use additional uh, you know volunteers. That would be particularly paralegals, lawyers, investigators. Uh, people that are good have a talent for fundraising. That that's as well. And look, one day, one day, one day, Wade, I, I I would like to get my book published. I, I'd love to be able to get you know a movie deal and to have my story out there through other forms of art, whether that's a Broadway, a musical, a one man show. I mean, I believe that different forms of art have different uh, fan base. Right. So I'd like I'd like to get I'd like to get the show. Out. I would like to get my story out. You as got, much as I can. You have a, a small documentary on Amazon, right? Yes, that's right. There is a documentary short on Amazon Prime about my advocacy work in life post-exoneration, which is called uh, Conviction. It's produced by Gia Wertz, and it's uh, gotten into 16 film festivals and won, a one, won four awards. And later this year, uh, Gia is going to reduce a, uh, going to release a full feature uh, documentary, which will be which will be a, an hour and a half, but the the thing I'm most proud of uh, in terms of conviction, you know, is that I used my camera time, some of it, to talk about some of the non innocence issues, a lot of disturbing things that I either was subjected to or that I witnessed. I mean, and you know, I talked about you know the verbal abuse from guards to, to, to the prisoners and how there was no real effort to stop the prisoner and prisoner violence and, and uh, college education for prisoners and, uh, you know, and how, you know, given the extremely low recidivism rate for college educated prisoners, it really needs to be considered a serious crime fighting tool to the terrible food in prison, to 
the medical care in prison and how people uh, were clearly not the same people that they were 10, 15, 20 years before with, at the time of a crime were still nonetheless uh, denied, denied parole and, you know, compassionate release where a prisoner has been determined to be terminally ill and you can apply for early release so that you can die with a little bit of dignity around friends and family and in a normal environment and how the system was so bureaucratic and, and uncaring that often by the time a decision would be made, somebody would be dead already or when they go home, they're dead in a day or two. You know, um, all those all of those things, you know, that were just unacceptable up to me from 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 solitary confinement to even over sentencing. Uh, there were a lot of people I met, Wade, that were doing 20 or 30 years because they got caught with drugs. It was um, a small possession here, which made it a felony rather than this smaller amount, which would have made it a misdemeanor and therefore punishable by a year or less. And yet they were doing 20 or 30 years, which was more time than other people I met in the prison that were there for committing acts of violence. And right. you know, that really, that, that really was uh, backwards to me. And, you know, I talked about all those things and, you know, I, I hope that it stimulates further discussion and ultimately, you know, legislative changes, you know, because uh, people are supposed to be sent to prison as punishment. You know, once you're found guilty, if you're, you know, lawfully gathered evidence in a fair trial, then you lose your freedom. That's that's what it is. But you're supposed to, the punishment is supposed to be the loss of your freedom. It's not supposed to be to be mistreated uh, while you're there. And, you know, the mark, of a, the mark of a civilized society is how it treats its prisoners. And I have to say that uh, for a country as great as ours with, you know, the words on Constitution and our our rights and our ideals that we give lip service to, uh, I, I have to give us, I have to give us an unmitigated F when it comes to all of those things. And so, hence speaking about them, because I find all those, all those issues to be, you know, unacceptable. You know, I, I'm about fighting wrongful conviction and having a just, a just justice system. And I don't, that to me, that's not an anti-cop thing. It's not an anti-prosecutor. Uh, I think the world would be scary without cops. I mean, we're going to return to wild, wild west. Uh, but at the same time, I mean, I'm not against the cops. I'm, I'm against dirty cops. I'm against dirty prosecutors. And, you know, but if you're in those professions and you're doing your job in a, in a lawful, ethical, and legal way, I have no issues with you. And I've gotten some buy-in. You know, I, I, I've spoke, I've taught at police academies for the last eight years, twice a year. I've spoken at, at district attorney offices in front of groups of prosecutors, and I've been able to serve on transition team to an incoming district attorney and spoken in front of uh, judges. And, you know, I don't, I don't change the message. I mean, that, that really is, that really is what it is. I would love to see the honest people in those professions to turn on the other ones, force them out. It, 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 I categorically reject the idea that it is a few bad apples. It's a hell of a lot more than that, or we wouldn't have all these wrongful convictions and police brutality, unjustifiable deadly police force. But it's also still not everyone. Right. But to share, yeah, I'm asked sometimes, am I angry? And I want to enjoy my life as much as I can. And I can't do that if I'm angry or bitter. 
if I was angry or bitter, I mean, I feel like I've lost so much already that why would I want to, in effect, give over the rest of my life? I, I would really be the only loser in that scenario. And it's not like I'd be impacting people that had something to do with this anyway. But instead, I make I make sense of everything that happened to me in a kaleidoscopic type of way that I think that I'm doing exactly what I'm supposed to do in this world. That's how I make sense of things. And I, I have, you know, I have a sense of peace that way. You know, making a difference, it's healing, it's cathartic, and it makes my suffering count for something. And so I do what I do. Well, that's, I mean, I think that's what you, you have to do in, in your situation to be able to, to make it because you, anything you can do to prevent someone else from going through something that yourself went through or guys like Andre that we, we spoke with earlier, if we can, if we can stop, we want to stop them all, but if we can stop just one, you know, then, then you made a difference and it kept someone from going and, and sitting in prison for for years upon years. And, you know, you guys are the, the fortunate ones and you say that and you think, well, how fortunate you had to spend years in prison, but there's some people that are doing life that are never going to get out. And that's Thanks. the unfortunate truth. <clears throat> that is the unfortunate truth. I do consider myself fortunate. I mean, how many people are still in there? How many people never, never did not have DNA in their case? How many people never find their way to, good representation like Andre found with Oscar and then with me joining the team. So you're right in many ways, you know, and how many people fell by the wayside or they commit suicide or they lost their, lost their mind. I mean, you know, how many people quit uh, all, all of those things. So yes, you're right. I do. I do feel fortunate in many, many ways. And I feel like I've been blessed with a lot of educational opportunities that many other people don't get, hence feeling a strong moral responsibility to uh, do everything I can to you know, to be all in on this. And that's why I'm not on an island someplace right now and right. living. If I wanted to live a never-ending vacation on a beach and just drink and, you know, wine woman song, I, I, I could do that forever if I wanted to. Mm -hmm. But there's no meaning in that. And that would be wasting the talents and opportunities I've been blessed by God to have. And I think right now, this is what I'm, this is where the action is. And um, I got in sports terms, Wade, uh, maybe moving past the fantasies and delusions of in the prison, you know, playing. Maybe, maybe the way I look at it now in, in terms of uh, becoming a lawyer, uh, uh, I, I got, I got tired of being the head coach, Wayne. Yeah. Uh, Wade, I, I wanted to get on the field and play a quarterback. There you go. <laughs> well, well, I hope you throw a few more touchdowns and and get a few more Andre yes. Browns on your yes, uh, side. That's what absolutely. That's what it's all about, man. That's the Super Bowl right there. That's the ring, man. That's yeah. the ring. I got one ring. I, I need. I need more rings. I need more rings. You got to catch up with Tom Brady. Yeah, yes, absolutely, and then, and then surpass him. <laughs> yes. In, in closing, I want to ask you this one question. You know, and you kind of touched on it a little bit earlier. You know, it's hard to not have certain kind of feelings towards law enforcement, but at the same time, it's also, you know, doesn't make sense to blame every single member because there's, there are a lot of great men and women in law enforcement and in the judicial system. But when you right. go through something like this, it can't help, but to, to change the way you feel about it. 
how what, what, do you have faith in our justice system right now? I mean, obviously, w- with what you're doing, it, I would take that answer would probably be not so much. But in the vast scheme of things, you know, do you have faith in our justice system that we really want to do the right thing? Or is there still a lot of misconduct left that needs to be dealt with? Because it seems to me, and this is my opinion, I'm not speaking for you or or anyone else, but it seems to me that the way this system is set up, that for a prosecutor to move up the ladder, his job is to put you in jail. And I think it doesn't matter to him. If you're in front of him, his job is to put you in jail, not to try to see if you're innocent. That's your lawyer's job or your public defender's job. And public defenders, as we discussed earlier, are not equipped to handle this. So a lot of what they do is try to get you to make a plea deal, which in turn gets the prosecutor his conviction, which in turn enough of those he can move up maybe to district attorney and and climb up the corporate ladder. So their steps of progression in their jobs is to put people in prison for long amounts of time. Do you think we're any closer? Do you have any faith that we're getting better at this? So I think we're getting a little bit better at this. I do believe that with each person that makes it out, it becomes a little bit easier for the next person to come out. Uh, Unfortunately, in these cases, having the facts and law on your side is only half the equation. The next part is, is a judge going to objectively consider you know, consider your arguments and make fair rulings. And too often, as opposed to just rubber stamp denying, and too often it is the rubber stamp denial. So I think that each person that makes it out makes it a little bit easier because I think the judges will pay attention just a little bit more. Uh, And then there's more people that are getting involved in working on wrongful convictions. There's innocence organizations cropping up and even individual attorneys that, you know, are starting to take cases on. Uh, So I think things are getting just a little bit better in uh in that aspect of it but i do think that there's nonetheless quite a lot of corruption that's still going on there's still uh lack of good faith they're still just simply trying to win there's still too much uh deliberate misconduct there's still the problem on the part of the judiciary Uh, i i feel confident that the justice system is broken and uh, hence doing the policy work but i'm you know trying to make it more accurate in terms of wrongful conviction uh, prevention and then, you know, the other aspects of it, which we've talked a little bit uh, about before. I think that we think that we have a long way to go and we still have, we still have a lot of, uh, a lot of resistance. And the sad part is that, you know, a lot of these same systemic deficiencies that have led to wrongful convictions 10, 20, 30 years ago, uh, bad lawyering, uh, misidentification, false confessions, lying informants, um, you know, too large a caseload for public defenders, uneven playing field, tunnel vision. All these things are largely not addressed by uh, legislation, you know. To, to, so a wrongful conviction can happen just as easy today through those same unaddressed deficiencies as happened before. I feel like DNA has kind of lulled us into a false sense of security, like, well, that could never happen now. But reality is DNA is only around in 5 to 12% of all serious felony cases. And, you know, it means 88% of the cases DNA, you know, cannot be resolved uh, through, through DNA. And even now, I mean, you know, Rodney Reed in Texas, where 
you know, he's trying to get further DNA testing and the, the prosecutors are fighting him. Courts are upholding the prosecutors. Uh, Tennessee uh, was the sadly alley case. And, you know, they executed him. He was asking for DNA testing and they executed him without, without giving him the DNA testing. So we still see these disturbing trends still going on. And even look at uh, Andre's case. I mean, they're appealing their reversal. Like it's not clear as day that at a minimum, his lawyer was ineffective for not presenting the you know, the medical evidence that he could not have committed the crime. So there's still too much, there's still too much of that uh, going on. And hence the struggle continues. Well, and I, and I alluded to this a few times. I think it's because it gives the black eye and the more that they admit that this happens, the more that people are going to look at, okay, well, if it happened once, it probably happened again. All right. Well, if it happened five times, it probably happened seven and, and so on and so on. So the more they can cover it up, you know, and, and it's not just judicial system and law enforcement. I mean, I've seen this in, in workplace environments and everything. You know, you, you, you don't want to get in trouble. You don't want to look bad. So you try to cover one thing up. And a lot of times that leads to covering up multiple things um, to, to, to try to save face. And I believe that a lot of times is what, what happened. Uh, you know, I just want to tell you how much I appreciate you coming on the show, man, and, and sharing your story and sharing everything that you went through, you spun something very positive out of something that probably at one time was the biggest negative that anybody can get. And that's being incarcerated when you didn't do a thing wrong and to be able to come out and have the mindset, like you've just spoken about to dedicate your time and, and energy when you right now you're thankfully in a position to where you do not have to, like you said, you could go and, and live on a beach and sit my ties for the rest of your days if you wanted, but to be able to do that and, and help others, it, it's a testament to who you are as a person. And I genuinely want to say thank you for coming on the show and sharing your story. And we will do everything we can to, to send some people your way to hopefully get some, some donations thrown your way and to spread this story for people that, that haven't heard it and to make sure people understand that this happens a lot. It happened a lot back in the nineties. It, it's probably still happening today. I know for a fact it was happening. Like I said, myself was involved in, in something similar. So it still happens today. So it just needs to be something that people are aware of and that they can look out for. Absolutely. Well, ladies and gentlemen, I am Hollywood Wade. That was Jeffrey Deskovic. And unfortunately, we are out of time. So tune in next week for an all new episode of Crime and Entertainment. Jeffrey, again, we appreciate your time, my friend. Thanks for having me on. Thank you. Well, I can't even begin to tell you how grateful I am that Jeffrey is taking the steps to do what he's doing here to try to make sure this doesn't happen anymore. Unfortunately, this happens a lot more then we realize, folks, and how about being able to talk to that other individual that he got off of his charges right now? I think that they may refile. I'm not sure. This episode is coming out a little later than we recorded, so I'm going to have to get an update on that. Hopefully get him on the show and tell his story as well. But this is all too common, folks, and it's uh, it happens because of short-sightedness from prosecutors, detectives. People are just looking for convictions, and that's really all it boils down to because the more people they can throw in jail – that's how they move up their corporate ladder where the regular guy, Joe from 
Walmart or steel plant or whatever, you know, you put out production, you put out product, you move up the ladder. These people move up by putting people's ass in jail and they don't give a rat's ass if they're guilty or innocent. That's how they move up the corporate ladder. So we really got to do something to stop this because you take an individual that does not have the money to get a good lawyer. Uh, you know, it's, it's lights out, man. They're going to be doing a lot of time behind bars. Uh, I've got a very interesting story myself about this. It's going to be coming out with some documentaries and some other podcast episodes here in the very near future. So I know all too well how easy it is to get wrapped up in something and being charged with a, a heinous crime that you had nothing to do with. So I hope everybody enjoyed that episode. Again, we're going to shout out next week's episode. Be sure to check it out. Michael Thompson, former shot caller of the Aryan Brotherhood. He's got an amazing story. Great, great podcast, so do not miss it. Again, we're on all the audio platforms, ladies and gentlemen, Spotify, Apple, Google, Stitcher, Amazon, if it's out there, we are on it, as well as the YouTubes. Go like, subscribe, get the notification bell. That way you get an episode every time we drop it, and that will do it for today's episode. I'm Hollywood Wade. That was Jeffrey Deskovic. Go check him out, jeffreydeskovic.com. He's got a nonprofit. If you feel so inclined, please donate because it helps out these people that are behind bars. Because you're behind those bars, you ultimately feel like you have no one. So the, the team that he's putting together to be able to help these individuals works miracles, folks. That's really all I can say about it. Because when you are behind those walls, you feel like you have no one. And there's a lot of people that are behind those walls that do not deserve to be there. So please, if you can find it in your heart to donate, please donate to that man's uh Nonprofit Foundation. And with that, we thank you. I'm Hollywood Wade. Tune in next week for an all new episode of Crime and Entertainment.